This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am here with David Canfield, the lone representative of our usual crew. Hello, David. Hello. I'm feeling lonely today. Well, we're here together. And also with Richard and Rebecca, often can. You'll hear from them a bit later. Uh, We've brought in a very special guest, our friend, our VF Weekends colleague. Hello, Jordan Hoffman. Bonjour. I am here from France. (laughs) My name is Jordan, and I have flown in from the Côte d'Azur. There we go. (laughs) Did I just offend all the French listeners with my accent? I wonder how many French listeners we have. We'll I think have they're, all ca- they're all in Cannes. They're all in Cannes. They're all taking the week That's off, true. so they're we're too, good. They're too busy. Um, I mean, Jordan, we brought you here to talk about Star Trek, and then also you got to bust out your French accent. So I feel like we're, we're hitting the highlights real fast here. Um, so we'll hear from Richard and Rebecca later with the dispatch looking ahead toward Cannes. As we record this, the festival is basically just kicking off. So they kind of uh, looked ahead to the big titles to look out for. And we'll talk about Star Trek and friendship because Jordan Hoffman has a new book called The Star Trek Book of Friendship. We'll give you lots of opportunities to plug it later on. Uh, but first, there's Oscar news, which is I described as not news on any podcast except this one. But there's a date for next year's Oscars. Uh, it's on March 12th, which is a little bit earlier than last year, not nearly as late as the year before that. David, any is there any meaning to be drawn out of any of this? It seems like a pretty standard schedule after two years of uh, semi-chaos. Yeah, it seems like they continue to slightly wind back the clock, so we aren't stuck in that late April uh, Oscars afterglow, which was Never again. Uh, delayed due to the pandemic, of course. Last year, we were March 27th, or this year, I should say, um, which was pretty late. I think it's the Academy doing what it should do. I think it's in the right space this year, more of a mid-March date. Um, mm-hmm. And they have no control over the fact that Oscar season is endless and <laughs> we, start, <laughs> we start way too early regardless and they are not to be blamed for that, I suppose. We should turn our attention to the studio's launching campaigns in the summer. And those year-round awards podcasts that just talk about it forever, like they got- What is with those? How dare they? <laughs> um, I mean, one significant change, I think, I think the Governor's Awards had been slated to be in January all along last year, and then they got delayed by um, the Omicron surge, and it kind of petered out. But this year, they'll be back in November, the weekend before Thanksgiving, which I think is traditionally like a a convenient time for a lot of people to um, get their campaigns in gear. That seems like a good move to me. How about you, David? Very good move. I'm sure everyone who likes to campaign and go to the Governor's Awards is very happy because it... There's a reason to go. The voting is not closed (laughs) as it it was this past year. Uh, It's a great event, though. 
you hope that, I mean, there are rising COVID cases right now, as there are every <laughs> three or four months. Sure. Um, so it's perhaps a weird time to say that you hope for even more of a return to normalcy uh, next season, not just in like famous people going to big fancy parties, but in terms of movies getting the rollout they deserve, getting seen yes. as they deserve, and as you know, the marketing is hoping they get seen, which didn't happen for a couple of movies this past cycle. And this is all a part of that. This is all, I think, the Academy saying, we are in a moment of relative stability right now. Let's try to get back on track after the chaos, as you say, of this past year. Yeah. So the Governor's Award, normally the party is after the voting has completed, but this no, no, normally it's like well before. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, so the nominees can feign an appreciation for for for, for Danny Glover. For they can. They can. <laughs> I've always yes. loved his work. I'm here really to shake hands. Yeah. 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 I Got remember it. a couple of years ago, the Urine Zellweger one, and just watching her go to every seat yeah. <laughs> at the governor's awards. It was it was impressive, and she seemed genuinely thrilled to do it. Um, well, and you the, think about the um, the timing in November, like. The, even the Critics Awards haven't started coming out yet. Everyone's got a chance. So every studio can buy a table. Uh, there's certainly a, a good reason to have it that early in the cycle. That year, uh, that Zellweger year, was like a dream campaigning year because you had her, Brad Pitt, and Laura Dern, who were just ha legends having the time of their lives, glad-handing for six months. And then I guess you had Joaquin <laughs> Phoenix doing whatever he was doing. <laughs> Miserably shuffling from room to room. Yeah. It was the ideal vibe, though, of people who where it's not too much work for them to spend a few hours in a ballroom at the Beverly Hilton. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask about that early January window now because we had the news from last week that the SAG Awards won't be on TNT or TBS. It's definitely the potential for them to move. The Critics' Choice Awards are still kind of hovering over the Golden Globes' former spot. But, you know, there's one award show in early January that's not going anywhere, and that's the New York Film Critics Circle Awards, chaired by one Jordan Hoffman. Yeah, this year's going to be nuts because uh, they're going to let me talk. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we don't televise our awards. We do record the audio. And maybe I'm, I'm going to make a, um, a scoop here on Little Gold oh boy. Men. You ready for the little scoop? Who wants mm -hmm. a scoop? Yeah. I want the a New scoop. York Film Critics Circle, the most august critics group in America, certainly, the second oldest on the planet. There is one in Britain that's a little bit older, but we go back to 1935. And we do have audio going back, so I'm told, about 20 years. Hmm. And there is going to be an effort made, I can't say exactly when, but soon, we will begin to release some of these audio clips of people accepting their awards. And that's fun, because, Katie, you've been to the NYFCC oh, Gala. Yeah number of times some of those awards speeches and also the presentations oh yeah from big uh, a-listers are oftentimes hilarious partially because they're not on tv so people can cut loose a little bit and talk forever no one yeah they do off. sometimes go on but always nice lady gaga last year uh or this year i should say you know she let loose but it was great because everybody loves her and she deserved yeah. that win and but you know a couple of years ago adam sandler who did not win, but he introduced the Safdie brothers because they mm -hmm. won, mm -hmm. I believe, the Best Director Award. That was that same Renee Zellweger, Brad Pitt campaign year, the, the pre-COVID <laughs> campaign year. We it's all was, remember it so fondly. Looming. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Adam Sandler did a, did a show. It was like he was at the Improv or Caroline's. He just did a bit and it was amazing. And, 
Yes, the New York Film Critics Circle in January. Uh, we'll we'll be back. We're usually the first one out of the gate in early January, and and we'll be back again next year, assuming, of course, there's no. We did Omicron. I don't know which Greek letter is is next. Maybe it's a row or. Uh, <laughs> You know, Omega sounds particularly threatening. I hope it's yeah. not the Omega variant. I don't know. If it, maybe, that, maybe that can be the end. Yeah. <laughs> Omega can be done with this. Well, I wanted to ask you about that, too, because we have news about your early January arrival, the Golden Globes, which I can barely make heads or tails of. There was a press release last week about them. It sounds like they're considering being bought. And, David, you seem like you understand this a smidge better than I am. What, what can we tell that this means, if anything? As far as I can tell, this is me maybe taking a bit of a leap here, but the Golden Globes are in in a lot and very much in limbo this year because unlike this past year where NBC was just basically like we are not airing the show, we are taking a year off to reassess. This year, I don't believe that we know whether or not they're going to be on NBC. And meanwhile, there's this whole thing, as you mentioned earlier, with the SAG Awards and whether they can take a larger network chunk of that precursor audience. To me, this reads like the HFPA has not gotten to where they need to be to become, again, the big, um, splashy, boozy, pre-Oscars party that they were in 2019, (laughs) 2020. Mm -hmm. Because essentially they had brought in... Todd Bowley, who has been the HFPA interim CEO for a few months now. And from what I can understand, he had put forth a proposal. Yeah, so essentially they've they've opened the door to um, selling, for lack of a better way of putting it. The statement is incredibly wordy and confusing, and I think intentionally so. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I, I, I don't believe that we have... I think we've learned to not expect transparency from this organization, um, and they've certainly struggled mightily over the past year uh, to regain the cachet that they very swiftly lost. It's also worth noting that they had lost their PR firm, Sunshine Sacks, mm-hmm. which had been with them through probably the darkest period when you know a lot of A-listers were calling them out and NBC was you know abandoning ship, at least temporarily. And so now they do a lot of their PR in-house. And this is probably the first big uh, press release we'd gotten from them. And judging by it, it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if they should start soliciting uh, an agency for, for their communications because it's it's very confusing and it's likely just masking um, an attempt to find someone who can salvage whatever's going on over there. Well, they're, yeah. pro- they're probably going broke. I mean, if they didn't have a TV deal last year, they probably... Don't have that much. But the, the good news is for them, I guess, is they can only go up. They're absolutely in the toilet now. They have no cachet. They weren't on TV. You had actors sending the trophies back. Right? <laughs> did anyone actually do that? Or did that Tom Cruise just word. say he would? People said they did. And I did would Tom not. Cru- I think Tom Cruise did it. He's a man I would be interested word. for like someone to like go find that. Uh... <laughs> Go see where the trophy landed. You got You got to get on the helicopter. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, not only did he send it back, he flew it back himself. Yeah, what if he drops it out of his helicopter over Cannes as a, <laughs> as a symbolic you know, the, By the way, uh, guys, what, what's going on with our friend Sean Penn? He was supposed to smelt his Oscars when Zelensky didn't, didn't show right. up. And everybody forgot because of this Fakakta 
Chris Rock uh, um, and uh, what's his name smacking him across the face. <laughs> I can't and, believe um, you forgot Will Smith's name. Yeah, Will Smith, that guy. <laughs> but it, it, no more. Twelve hours earlier, the story of the day was Sean Penn vowing on CNN that he was going to smelt his Oscars. I went and looked up. Oscars are made primarily out of bronze. We're talking three thousand degrees Fahrenheit. He did, you know, that's a, that's a total order. So I figured I'd give him at least a week to find a good smelting operation out there no, in Eastern Europe. He's just promoting gaslit like nothing happened. Yeah, what a, he's, wh- he, he's in his fat suit now. He's unrecognizable. What a skunk. <laughs> what a skunk. Um, I, you know, about the Golden Globes, uh, here's the thing. I, I think that they're never going to go away because they're ver- that phrase, the Golden Globes, is very, very famous. People who yep. would never in a million years listen to this podcast, who don't go to the movies, who don't care about any of this stuff, they've heard of the Oscars and they've heard of the Golden Globes. It's really well known. So somebody will buy it and then they can they can possibly rebuild. They need a tremendous amount of reform. They need to get rid of a lot of their membership. They need to find new membership. But I do think they can rebuild. Um, and I think that somebody will invest in in buying the brand because it's a, it's a real brand, whether it deserves to be it deserves that or not is open to debate, but I do think that there is a future for the Golden Globes. So, um, and they can yeah. only go up. I mean, they're they're it can only get better for them. Yeah, in a time when award shows are like declining in relevance, the fact that the Golden Globes is something that people know about that you're right that that means something. Yeah. SAG awards don't mean much to commoners, you know, even though we recognize them for what they are. But the Golden Globes are, you know, they're they're a thing. So if we were to place our bets now, do we think that the Golden Globes will air on television in some capacity in January? I think it will be streamable. <laughs> maybe yeah. not no, on yeah, network television. True. But I think maybe Tubi TV or Pluto, <laughs> Pluto or one of those weird ones. No, maybe like a Peacock or something will will have it available. I don't think you're going to tune in to NBC or ABC or one of the big boys at night on a Sunday night and have it. But maybe in the future, you know? Well, then the, the second question is if that if it's not happening that way, then it, will anyone be there? Or even conversely, how does that impact the airing possibilities, because the broadcast possibilities? Because the big concern for them is how much of Hollywood has indefinitely abandoned them and does yeah. not want to deal with them and now doesn't have to deal with them, um, which has to do with how the HFPA in, in various ways has conducted itself for a number of years. So that's the other really big question is, is Hollywood wel- willing to welcome them back? And in what capacity? Because I, to- I totally agree with you, Jordan, that they do have an ability to come back just based on the power of their brand. But they tried to get some people involved in last year's show, and they couldn't even do that. And, um, yeah. No, it's a tricky. good point. They, they would need to do a real overhaul to hire a new public face and people who have some, you know, some clout and some respectability. Yeah. Do any of us have international citizenship that would qualify? I don't. I have international residency. Oh, yeah. You, you, you've, you have enough New Zealand background, David. I feel like you could really um, sneak in there somehow and revamp it from the inside. I'll get Jane Campion and Melody Winsky <laughs> all the line, and, and we're going to figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. 
Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Turner Classic Movies presents Decoding John Ford, the all-new season of The Plot Thickens. This season on The Plot Thickens, we explore the world of renegade movie director John Ford. Ford was a living legend, a cinematic giant, and also a notorious egomaniac who could unload on actors. You will hear from the best of them, John Wayne, James Stewart, Catherine Hepburn, even Ricardo Montalbán. Find out how Ford's legacy survives his personal demons. Don't miss Decoding John Ford, the new season of The Plot Thickens, with new episodes available every week, available wherever you get podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So now we're going to hear from uh, Richard and Rebecca, uh, who recorded a segment before they headed off to France uh, to talk about Cannes. But I, before we throw to them, Jordan, you are a Cannes veteran here who we have brought in, and you have seen probably the biggest movie premiering there, Top Gun Maverick. What, what, do you, what do you want to preview more? Do you want to talk about Top Gun, or do you want to talk about what you are expecting from this year's Cannes? Oh, well, I'm not at CAM this year, and I have gone many times in the past, so I am suffering greatly from a debilitating case of CAM FOMO. Mm -hmm. And there is no emergency uh, Paxlovid from the government that's, uh, that can, <laughs> that's, a, that's a COVID deep cut. There is no emergency <laughs> Paxlovid from the government that can uh, cure me of my CAM FOMO. So I've been trying not to pay attention to what's going to be happening out there too much, so I don't have too many too many picks on what's uh, what's going to pop. I mean, I've heard some things and I've seen uh, one or two things. Um, I am excited for Elvis. I mean, I'm excited for Elvis. Maybe that makes me, maybe oh, me I'm a too. mark. Oh, I'm excited for Elvis. Yeah. And continuing in our tradition of people who are not going to be nominated, making grand dramatic pronouncements about what they'll do if things don't happen the way they want to at the Oscars, Lisa Marie Presley is going to eat her own foot. She's going to eat her own foot. <laughs> If Austin Butler does not win Best Actor. Good for her. Good for her. And Priscilla. Jean Sean Penn. Yeah, Pris Priscilla, <laughs> yeah. Eat your, first smelt the foot, then eat it. And Priscilla <laughs> said she loved it too. And, you know, I mean, I guess it's in their interest to say they like it, but they don't have to. They can keep quiet. You I mean, know. The, the long history of people whose families are in biopics, like how they weigh in and what they say. I mean, we just went through it with the Williams family. It never stops being fascinating. Arnez biopic. Oh, Yeah. What's interesting is uh, if you go deep on Priscilla's comments and Lisa Marie's comments, which for some weird reason I did, neither of them say much of anything about Tom Hanks. Lisa Marie said nothing, didn't even mention him. And Priscilla said, blah, 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 the colonel, what a character. 
I got to see all sides of him and he has an interesting story. So he was she was like political about the colonel because obviously he made Elvis, but he was he also broke Elvis's heart and blah, blah, blah. And the thing is, if you watch the trailer to Elvis, Tom Hanks is really going for it with that accent. Oh, yeah. And if you watch video of Colonel Tom Parker, who was whose real name was, you know, something very Dutch. He has a mild Dutch accent. He doesn't sound <laughs> like Dracula or whatever. Like, you know, if you if yep. you were to meet Colonel Tom Parker, you'd be like, "Where's this guy from? He's got a bit of he's got a tinge of an accent somewhere, but I don't know where he's from." And Tom Hanks is really going for it, but it's not like Baz Luhrmann is known for reeling it in. So, but yeah, the other big movie, a big Hollywood movie you mentioned is Top Gun, and I have seen it, and it's uh, it's quite a motion picture. Uh, do you feel like it lives up to the uh, big can hype history of Mad Max Fury Road or Shrek? What a legacy. Yeah, no, no. Uh, the truth of the matter is I, I happen to I really like Joe Kaczynski, the action director. This is his fourth film. None of his movies have been major hits. And Tron Legacy was a bit of a flop. I mean, it, I don't know. It had, it had Tron Legacy was whatever what it was. Um, then he made Oblivion, which was did well, but it was not a monster hit. And then he did the Fireman movie with with Miles Teller. Called, I think it's called Only the Brave or something like this. Oh I my actually, god! Oh yeah, I forgot that. It's really good. That. It's really really good. He is a really good stylist. And then he's got Spider Baby coming out later this summer. Spider Excuse Land. Me? He's got a Netflix Spider movie Head. With Spider Head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, with Hemsworth. Honestly, right? Hemsworth. And also Miles Teller. And Miles Teller. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kaczynski's got a look, and I, you know, a movie like. Top Gun, how much of that is the does the auteur theory come into play? God only knows, you know, but there are sequences in Top Gun 2 written, written the script is is like a, a G.I. Joe episode from the 80s. It's a cartoon. But the way it's cut together, the slickness that the if you the thrust, the propulsive energy, not to use jet fighter terms, but it really does work in this case. It's exciting stuff. It's really, really, really good action filmmaking. I mean, you come out of this the way you come out of uh, Cameron's Terminator 2. Like, Whoa. holy smokes. It's like, it's nonstop. And the plot is just idiotic. It's basically Star Wars. They got to go destroy the Death Star and they got to zoom in and whatever. It's and like not the name the enemy, right? Isn't that no, the they're thing? just they're just vague <laughs> villains. It's It's preposterous. Um, you know, Jennifer Connelly is just, it's so embarrassing what they'd make her do in this movie. I mean, she's just a non, she's a non-entity. She just shows up periodically as a walking studio note of like, oh, you got to have a woman in this movie somewhere. And um, yeah, one of the flyers is a woman in this. Uh, I forget her call sign. Uh, it's like, they all have, you know, like Maverick and Goose. The new ones are like Payday and whatever they're called, you know. One of them is called Fanboy. The t the font on his helmet is the Star Trek font, which oh, I thought boy. was nice because they're both Ooh. Paramount properties. Uh, a nice tie-in to our next conversation, I guess. Yeah, exactly. But I thought that was nice uh, synergy on behalf of the studio. Anyway, Top Gun 2 is really good. I mean, it's idiotic, but it's good. I, I really enjoyed it. And it's better than the first movie. I mean, I rewatched the first movie, you know, the day before I saw the new one. And it's just simply like, this has more energy, more action, more Tom Cruise being Tom Cruise. And the first one had beach volleyball. This is beach touch football. Great. So I don't know if that's more American sport. Yeah, it's great. Um, well, I think Richard and Becca will have uh, the more auteur focused part of can uh, <laughs> ahead for us. We did talk about Top Gun last week, though. And I think, you know, Jordan, you're far from the only one who's really into this new one. So, yeah, 
you know, let with, us. With, with a lot of asterisks of like one of one of um, Maverick's phrases is don't think, do. Mm. And that's it. If you, God forbid, you think during this movie, you're going to say like, what am I doing with my life? I got to get out of here. It's really, <laughs> really dumb, but it's really energetic and entertaining. Um, all right. Well, let's hear about the rest of Can and throw to Richard and Rebecca. So, Rebecca, we're going to France. We are. How about that? You know, this is your first time at Cannes in since what, 2019? 2019. I've really missed it. I'm excited, but I do feel like it'll probably feel a little different this time. I, you went last year, right? So what was that like? I did. That was weird because it was in July instead oh, yeah. of May and it was very hot and there were soccer hooligans everywhere because the Euro Cup was happening and Delta variant was stalking the streets <laughs> and there was a new ticketing system introduced that will be there this year too. So I'm, I'm happy to be going back to the regular climbs of May when the festival can take over the town and not contend with, you know, summer tourists and soccer fans and all that. I'm sorry, football fans. Um, so part of the excitement or most of the excitement, I would assume, is related to the, the lineup of can this year. So I'm curious, Rebecca, what is the title that glares most brightly from that that lineup announcement? I do feel like the film that people are talking about the most to me is the Cronenberg Crimes of the Future. I, I don't know if it's just the mix of the cast or the fact that he hasn't had a film since 2014 or or what, but I feel like that's the one I'm hearing a lot about. I am. I don't do great with body horror, so on my personal list, it's probably not at the top, but it does feel like it has a lot of buzz going into this. Yeah, I mean, the fact that Cronenberg's last film, Maps of the Stars, won Best Actress for Julianne Moore at Cannes, it's many years later, but he's coming off of a, a successful debut at Cannes. So that's that's that adds to the excitement. But yeah, that cast, Viggo Mortensen, Lea Seydoux, who I think has like 20 movies mm-hmm. at the festival this year. Uh, Kristen Stewart, obviously. Scott Speedman, which is kind of exciting. Yeah. Canadian director, uh, working with Canadian actor. Um, I'm similar with you on the body horror thing. My hope is that there's... I don't know. I mean, it's deliberately called a body horror film on Wikipedia. I was going to say my hope is that it's like a little bit more than that. It's elevated body horror, but... There's definitely like an ear on a forehead or something in the trailer that I was like, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. But it's exciting. I feel like, you know, Cronenberg is somebody who gets spoken about a lot with David Lynch. They kind of came up around the same time. They both had their have their sort of idiosyncratic fixations. And there was a rumor that there would be a David Lynch Mm film. Um, premiering at Cannes this year, which is does not appear to be happening unless they have really pulled a fast one on us. But it's great that we at least get a, a Cronenberg big thing in main competition. Yeah. What are you hearing that or what is most exciting to you, Richard? Well, I think for our podcast purposes and maybe VF's broader purposes, like Elvis, obviously mm-hmm. the Baz Luhrmann film with Tom Hanks and uh, Austin Butler, who people might know from the Carrie Diaries. He was briefly in once upon a time in Hollywood, he's playing Elvis. I, I'm very curious, as I'm sure you are, Rebecca. Is that like a big Oscar performance? It seems like it is from the trailer. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if Lorman, who always gets some Oscar nominations, some you know usually for like craft categories, you know he's gotten other you know Moulin Rouge obviously did very well at the Oscars. I'll be curious to see how far he can take that because uh, his last debut at Cannes, which was Great Gatsby, did well commercially but didn't really connect on a sort of awards narrative basis unless am i remembering wrong but that didn't get like acting nominations right right i think that's right yeah i mean i'm curious about that he's had a lot of success at can obviously with will rouge was also there and strictly ballroom 
I, I can't help but compare it to sort of the Rocket Man trajectory since that was also a can uh, debut, but maybe it'll be very different. I don't know. But that that one had a huge party at Cannes, I do remember. So maybe this will at least have that. Were you and I at the same party, but we didn't know it because we didn't know each other? Were Elton John performed on the stage yeah. at the beach? Yes, we were at the same uh, party. I was there. <laughs> One of the best. my mom, yep. saying, yep. oh, I'm seeing, oh, she's like, what's going on? I'm, oh, Elton John's performing. And she was like, what? <laughs> I was treating it perhaps too casually. I think Rocket Man, you know, superior film to... Bohemian Rhapsody, mm-hmm. but Bo Rap was the one that went on to awards glory, which I thought was kind of a, a shame. But I guess Elvis could go one of either of those ways or a different way. You yeah. know, maybe it's a complete disaster. But yeah. I don't know. The trailer is intriguing enough. And don't we all want to see the movie that gave Tom Hanks COVID? Oh, yeah. There you go. That's that's the reason <laughs> to tune in, if nothing else. <laughs> the, the story that started it all. Is there anything on the kind of smaller scale that we, we don't know much about, but the director intrigues you or the title does or an actor in it? Personally, Ruben Ostland is like my favorite filmmaker. I thought Force Majeure was my favorite film of that year. I think The Square was so wonderful. I guess his films are considered smaller, right? Um, And he has Triangle of Sadness this year, which, you know, he's taking another sort of shot at the wealthy elite. This time it's on a cruise ship, I think. And it has Woody Harrelson. So I'm curious if this is going to be sort of a really great Woody Harrelson performance. But like on my personal what I really want to see, I feel like that's definitely my number one. What about you? Yeah, I mean, the idea of Harris Dickinson playing a model, I mean, that's just outrageous. I mean, that's just such strange casting. I don't understand. Yeah, that's definitely uh, high on my list. Uh, You know, he's coming off a Palme d'Or win. Force Majeure was on my best of the decade list. Mm, I think that mm -hmm. movie is excellent. The the American remake is okay, but people should seek out the original because it's really special. Uh, Mia Hanson Love uh, has a film called One Fine Morning that is in the uncertain regard, or no, excuse me, director's Fortnite category, which is one of the sidebar things that's not officially part of Cannes, but is very much treated like it is another Leia Sadu movie. Uh, Hanson Love had uh, Bergman Island at Cannes last year, and I saw it having waited in line or some or walked from my apartment in like 100% humidity <laughs> and was kind of miserable. And I don't think I absorbed that film as well as I should have. And I, I really loved it only on second viewing back in New York. So I'm hoping that this one does not fall victim to uh, other circumstances it can't control, because I think she's one of the most reliably interesting filmmakers going. Um, one of these Leia Sadu movies has to pop, and <laughs> so it maybe to. it's this it's one. the rule. She won't be in the running for like the big prizes, but it, maybe it could help her momentum for another film. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of interesting filmmakers in the lineup. I think that's what makes it so exciting this year. I'm curious to see George Miller's film. It's a fantasy romance, I think is how it's been described. And Idris Elba plays some sort of genie giving Tilda Swinton three wishes. And it's called 3000 Years of Longing. So I'm I'm definitely curious to see that. Obviously, it's not the Mad Max style of his last can film, but could be something different and interesting. Yeah, it's out of competition, which mm-hmm. I think does not say anything about its quality necessarily. It's just sometimes bigger, more quote-unquote commercial movies just like to do that and not have this sort of be vying for awards and thus they look bad if they haven't won anything. And so, yeah, I I think that's definitely going to be one of the big buzzed about titles, especially because Mad Max Fury Road premiered at Cannes as well and obviously propelled that movie toward uh, a lot of glory down the road. There are so many returning directors this year. 
Koreda, the Japanese mm-hmm. filmmaker, has a f- movie called Broker. He won the Palme d'Or for Shoplifters. And then he did an English language movie with uh, Ethan Hawke and Catherine Deneuve and I think Juliette Binoche, right? And mm-hmm. that was at Venice. So now he's back at Cannes with something set in Japan that I believe is about child adoption, I think. Yeah, um, I, I just watched I, the trailer and it looks really good. I mean, you know, it sticks with his themes that he's known for, but it's um, Song Kang-ho, who was, you know, is a very well-known Korean actor, but was the lead in Parasite. And it looks like they're sort of like trying to sell a baby, but which I think is probably why it's called Broker. But they're kind of this like group of ethically questionable people who form a family, that sort of thing. So I, I'm definitely pumped to see that one after seeing the trailer, too. Yeah. And then we have uh, Park Chan-wook coming back, mm-hmm. the Korean director, with a film called Decision to Leave. You know, he had The Handmaiden at Cannes a few years ago that was kind of tipped to win the Palme d'Or, but then didn't. Yeah. Strangely, I believe that was the year that the Ken Loach film won. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember that because Donald Sutherland was on the jury and he fell asleep right next to me during a screening of The Handmaiden. <laughs> and you're like, this isn't going to end I was well. like, oh, that doesn't, that doesn't bode well. You didn't try to like gently elbow him away. <laughs> I probably should have, but I think he had like an assistant with him who should have been doing that. Um, obviously, all eyes are on the Korean entertainment industry at the moment because of Squid Game, because mm-hmm. of Parasite. And I think that Park Chan-wook is one of the filmmakers, I think, credited with the, the start of this Korean film boom 20-something years ago. So it'll be exciting to see his uh, his latest, given the big competition slot. And then, you know, we have some first-time competition people. Um, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Rebecca, but Kelly Reichardt has not been in competition at Cannes before, right? That's right, yeah. Which is surprising. It's insane, but true. <laughs> what is her movie again? Showing Up, which stars Michelle Williams. Obviously, they work together a lot, and I'm excited to see another performance, another collaboration between the two of them. But yeah, she was a, Kelly had a film in in certain regard before, but not in the main right. competition. And it's described as kind of a comedy, like a workplace art world comedy, I think, which yeah, is yeah. a different vibe for Ke- I, Kelly Reichardt has done things that are like amusing in her films before, but mm-hmm. I, I don't really think of them ever being like, haha, funny. So I'm curious how that's going to take shape because she's such a deliberate filmmaker and and keyed into her specific style that it'll be interesting to see her working in maybe a slightly new genre. Yeah. And then let's see, what else? I'm looking at the main competition lineup. Uh, Lucas Don't, that's an interesting story. He has a movie called Close. Uh, He's a Belgian filmmaker who a few years ago won several awards for a film called Girl that was in in certain regard. And not to give myself too much credit, but that that movie, which is about a trans teenage girl uh, ballerina who um, really wants to get gender confirmation surgery and is being denied that by her family. And it takes a really um, unsettling turn. Anyway, I saw it and it was very well received at Cannes. And I said to an American colleague, I was like, that is not going to go well in the, over well in the States. And mm. I was right. <laughs> it, it, it was a very, it received a very different reception. So uh, obviously he was successful at Cannes, Lucas Don't was. So I'm curious to see how he fares with his second outing and if he is going to be courting controversy in the same way. Hmm, that's interesting. Oh, and then we haven't talked about um, James Gray is going to be in competition with his Roma, as we've been calling these, it's sort of a more personal coming-of-age story. It's called Armageddon Time, um, and it stars Anne Hathaway and Anthony Hopkins and method actor Jeremy Strong. I feel like there's definitely some promise there with that one as well, with that cast. Now, do we know if it's black and white? Oh, gosh. H- how much of a Roma is it, you know? <laughs> 
I feel like, yeah, there's been no images yet, right? So we don't actually know. It's fun to think if you want to group Armageddon Time with another film that like, so Gray is getting his stamp on the genre this year ahead of Spielberg, who also mm-hmm, has mm-hmm. his Roma coming out later this year, the Fablemans. You know, they are not similar filmmakers in, in most ways. And certainly Spielberg has a much higher profile. But James Gray, I think, is a filmmaker who has been simmering for a while and has just narrowly missed major like awards attention year after year, you know, film after film. I think the Lost City of Z from, what is that, 2017, is, I think, a brilliant, brilliant movie. And I was sad that that didn't get the attention I think it deserved. Um, you know, I think, I think Marion Cotillard came close to possibly getting a nomination for James Gray's The Immigrant. She was nominated for an Oscar for Two Days, One Night that year. And she split at the New York Film Critics Circle between The Immigrant and Two Days, One Night. So basically what I'm saying is that Gray has been sort of right under the surface there. And maybe all it takes is a New Jersey set slice of Americana nostalgia thing. I mean, I'm sure he'll do something more interesting than what I just described. But yeah, that (laughs) that one feels like um, a potential breakout here. Because if nothing else, the Europeans, the French in particular, really like James Gray. Oh, I should say, speaking of the French, uh, Claire Denis has a new film. Mm, mm-hmm. A filmmaker who's been working for a long time, but just feels all of a sudden like so prolific. Um, she yeah. just had a film in Berlin, I believe, in February uh, with Juliette Binoche. And now she has The Stars at Noon with... It has Margaret Qualley, daughter of Andy McDowell, uh, star of the recent Netflix uh, well-reviewed show Made, and Joe Alwyn, who is currently in Conversations with Friends on Hulu, Benny Safdie's in it, John C. Riley, and it's described as a romantic thriller, so maybe it's kind of going back to Denise, like white material days. It's an English businessman and an American journalist in Nicaragua during the revolution, so that 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 seems kind of exciting too. I think you know Denis is obviously a favorite at that festival of all the sort of big international festivals. Um, but um, I don't know. Maybe all of that prolific output will finally bear some gold shaped palm leaves. I was reading up on that film, and I love sort of the the Russian dolls of casting because it was supposed to star Robert Pattinson, who then couldn't do it, and then who she's obviously worked with before, and then. And then it was supposed to star Taron Edgerton, and now it's Joel Alwyn. So you just like get to peek at how one handsome man is replaced by the other for those things. But um, yeah. yeah, I'm I'm curious to see that one as well. Speaking of handsome men and and the Sally Rooney universe, Paul Mescal has two films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two films. Yeah, one is uh, from the director, one of the directors of The Fits, I believe, which was a a small but well-regarded Sundance film a few years ago. And this one has Emily Watson in it. it they, Paul Mescal plays her son, and there's some sort of secret that she's guarding for him. And I think it's kind of a thriller. It's A24, which is intriguing. It's in one of the smaller sidebar categories. You know, it's just funny to see, like, we all watched, or a lot of us watched Normal People at the height of the pandemic in 2020. And then here Paul Mescal is a couple years later, like, fully bearing the fruit of that success is that like, you know, he's got two movies at can, both of which seem pretty interesting. The other is, I believe, a horror film. And in one of them, he plays a, a dad, which I think is interesting because he is a young man and hasn't done that yet. But Not a daddy, uh, but a dad. Yes. Yeah. yeah an actual dad. <laughs> so, and yes, the other one is a, a horror film. So you can definitely get your Paul Mescal fix a can this year. That's a little narrative, Paul Mescal having a couple films uh, a couple mm-hmm. years after his big breakout. Uh, are there any narratives, you know, maybe not film specific that you're looking at, at the, that seems to be kind of emerging from this lineup in aggregate or anything just about like where the festival is, where we are as moviegoers? 
I don't know if it's just my own sensitivity to horror, but it does feel like there's a lot of horror this year or spooky films, um, which does make me wonder if it's just like where people's heads have been at, creatives' heads have been at after a pandemic for a couple years. But that could just be a coincidence in my own sort of bias and trying not to be seeing scary movies. But there is a lot of that. And the other funny coincidence I sort of noticed is that Riley Keough, the granddaughter of Elvis, has her own film, a directorial debut at the festival. So she will also be there. It's called War Pony. It's set on a Native American reservation um, and she co-directed it. But I thought that was such a weird coincidence. Yeah, it almost feels like preordained or something. Yeah, um, it's interesting. I'm pretty sure that Priscilla Presley will be in attendance at the festival. Mm -hmm. She's at the Met Gala. Like, they're really, the Elvis campaign is really up and running now. And um, I would assume, I don't know how much Keo likes to talk about that aspect Mm -hmm. of her life, but I'm sure she'll be there in at least some support of Elvis and her own film. And her own film, uh, War Pony, has an interesting origin story. She and her uh, co-director, who also is her co-producer, they have a production company together, when uh, Riley was filming American Honey, she mm-hmm. met these two guys who played extra, who were extras in that movie, and she got to talking to them, and they had really interesting stories about growing up on the reservation, and those stories turned into this screenplay. And I believe in the kind of Chloe Zhao, Sean Baker style, they found brand new, untested actors from you know the communities that they're depicting in the film, and so it has that kind of it. It feels a little bit like on paper, like it might be paying homage, let's say, to the styles of, of those two filmmakers, Zhao and and um, and Baker. But I mm-hmm. think that hopefully any criticism of like, well, why is Elvis's granddaughter like parachuting into this very fraught community, a Lakota reservation in South Dakota, to tell the story. But the screenwriters actually, these are their stories. So I th- think hopefully that will help buttress it some against um, any kind of backlash. Yeah. What about you, Richard? You see any other interesting trends or narratives That's, popping well, up? Well, I mean, I think the horror thing is always of note at every festival more and more because mm-hmm. so-called elevated horror seem to be the things that really break out of the festival in terms of eyeballs and attention, but also in terms of yeah. box office. So right. if people are turning to that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as ever, can is interesting for the way that it brings back people who are sort of in their repertory company. You know, we have the Dardens mm-hmm. back, we have Desplashen back, we have Christian Munju, the Romanian filmmaker, Ostlin, Park Chan-wook. But then they choose another filmmaker here and there, Kelly Reichardt, Lucas Don't, who are at different phases in their career and are finally getting invited into the big competition. So I, I'll be curious to see if this is a year with a jury led by Vincent Landon, who's a French actor, like where that jury will go in terms of do we want to give the award to the big, new, exciting thing, the way that Julia Ducournau did for Titan last year, or if they'll give it to an old master to kind of I don't know, Top Gun style proof that the old people still have it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm also looking forward to some kind of Top Gun stunt, by the way. Like I know. We didn't even talk about Tom Cruise probably like I don't know, landing a helicopter on the Hotel du Cop or something. But I hope he does uh, a flyover in a jet, you know, and <laughs> shakes all the tables at the Carlton Beach Club. You know? <laughs> but that feels like a perfect yeah, I think we talked about it last week, but a perfect sort of confluence of star potential and or, or star power rather and uh old brand awareness and the ridiculousness of can like a top gun sequel that tom cruise is very heavily marketing yeah that, that feels like a, a good fit for can i think can we, we we go for the elevated art house stuff but it's also fun to have the big commercial stunts as well yeah and it's the 75th anniversary so i do think 
we can anticipate there being, you know, some sort of celebration for that. And I know on the 70th anniversary, there was a really amazing gala where, where they had a bunch of filmmakers there. And, and I feel like, you know, after a sort of quiet, strange festival last year, this will really hopefully be back to form and, and be exciting. And by the time people listen to this, we'll be there. Oh, yeah, we should say, we, as you're listening to this, we are already in France, probably hopefully mm-hmm. filing something. I'll, maybe I'll have a review or two up of, of, I don't know, the new zombie movie from the guy who made the artist. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we'll be covering it throughout the whole festival. And Rebecca, you'll be kind of on the more interviewing and scene beat, right? Is that kind of your purview? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my plan is to obviously see as many of the films, especially potential award contenders as possible, but also do interviews on the ground. I sort of love the chaos of Cannes and getting those, getting talent to talk while they're running from premiere to press conference and, you know, downing a glass of rosé between those things. So it's always a really fun festival. And then we'll both be attending events and hopefully covering some of the bigger ones as well. So we'll be busy, I think. Yeah, I mean, I hope that I hope that I can come to some of the cool parties that you're going to. Sometimes they limit it to, to one uh, one person per outlet. But um, yeah, and I'll I'll be reviewing and maybe I I don't know. I mean, I, sometimes stories emerge from can that you don't expect, and it it takes the shape of can you believe that this. 57-year-old woman is playing a six-year-old Celine Dion, you know, and that mm-hmm, becomes its own mm-hmm. thing. So I think, yeah, the madness of Cannes is part of the point, and uh, we're excited to be there. I guess my last question for you, Rebecca, and it's an important question, how many gowns, how much, how much formal wear are you packing? Because I'm trying to figure a- out. <laughs> well, you have it easy, Richard. You can wear the same... But do I? Tux. But I have to bring. How many suits do I bring? Because you don't always <laughs> want to wear a black suit if it's an afternoony cocktail thing on the beach. That doesn't That's really true. work. There are a lot of those things too. I don't, I overpack so much; it's embarrassing. Like I look like I'm moving to France for a month. If you see a woman walking down the street with four large suitcases, it's probably That's you. Me. <laughs> and if you see someone frantically running into Zara to buy some sort of something, it's me, as I've done almost every year. Because oops, the suit from last year doesn't fit anymore. <laughs> <laughs> when you walk to the top floor of the of the ones are on Rudenti, there's just right when you get to the, the the men's floor a huge rack of black clip-on bow ties because they know <laughs> that's the thing that people forgot uh, yep. or didn't think to bring. So anyway, I will see you on the Quasette. I'm so excited, and um, yeah, all of you listening, uh, please uh, keep an eye out for our coverage on VF.com. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowicz, um, who should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah. that. We support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. It's real cash that never expires or loses value. Apply for Apple Card in the Wallet app on iPhone. 
Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Daily cash is available via Apple Cash Card issued by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC, or as a statement credit. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Well, Jordan, I feel like I never I never thought that I would have you on our awards podcast to talk about Star Trek, and I wish it was because there was a Star Trek movie that had Oscar buzz and we could really be diving deep on it, but... You are our friend and our colleague, and you have a book about friendship and Star Trek, which I do think is one of the more fascinating aspects of Trek lore. As someone who's not a sci-fi person, this sci-fi franchise that is built in many ways on like friendship and human optimism and relationships is really charming. And I, you know, having read some of your book, I think that's what you really dive into in this book, right? Yeah, 100%. Um, as far as awards are concerned, Star Trek has won many <laughs> Emmys in the technical categories. That Makeup, special effects, sound design, things of that nature. Yeah, uh, so uh, the Star Trek Book of Friendship is a, is a little, it's a gift book. You know, it's a cute little book. It's not, you're not walking around with Dostoevsky when you, when you hold this book in your hand. Um, <laughs> it's a collaboration between me and a very good friend of mine named Rob Perlman, who I met on the Star Trek circuit, which sounds like a ridiculous thing to say, but Rob has been <laughs> writing humor-related Star Trek books for years. This is his 10th one. Uh, he wrote Fun with Kirk and Spock was his first one. It was a best-selling book, a very cute kind of play on Fun with Dick and Jane in the Star Trek world. And I have been working as a panel moderator and host at Star Trek conventions for over a decade, uh, places like... Las Vegas, Nevada, and, uh, you know, L.A., New York, Chicago, London, Germany, and five times in a row, the Caribbean Sea on the Star Trek cruise. <laughs> right. Cruises are back. The cruises are back, baby. Um, anyhow, so Rob and I met, and we have become Star Trek friends. And a lot of people who are deep into Star Trek have Star Trek friends. And when the pandemic first started, Rob was thinking, what should my next book be about? He was thinking about the friendships he's seen at conventions. Not every Star Trek fan goes to conventions, but just sort of the friendships that he's witnessed that are made about the show and then started thinking about friendships within the show. So he's like, I want to write a book about, you know, the relationship between Kirk and Spock, Riker and Picard, Janeway and Balana. Odo and Quark, which is a frenemies friendship. I could go mm. on. And then realized the best way to write about it would be with a Star Trek friend. And since it was the pandemic, we did not actually meet in person. He lives in Jersey. I live in Queens. Uh, we were just doing it over Zoom and having – and, you know, we were supposed to be working. And instead, we were doing what we do, which is make Star Trek jokes at each other and just kind of babbling. And he had the realization of this is actually our book. It's a dialogue. We should just mm -hmm. be talking to one another. The concept of the book should be, we've invited you over to our house. We're going to watch Star Trek, and we're going to talk about all these relationships. So we talked and talked and talked and tried to hit all of the important relationships. And then we turned that into a book and got a, a very well-regarded illustrator from the comic book world, J.K. Woodward, to do the artwork, some of which is direct uh, representation of screenshots from the movies and films. Some of them are more creative out of his head. Uh, there are some images in there that like Star Trek fans would always have wanted to see, like Garrick helping Bashir get into a suit, which means nothing to somebody who doesn't watch Deep Space Nine, <laughs> but means a lot to a lot of people. Or like Dr. Bashir and Chief O'Brien in the hollow suite, but at the Alamo, which is something they talk about a lot, but you never actually see. So this is exciting for fans, but for non-fans or for less, you know, fans that aren't so hardcore, it's a fun, breezy little book about, about friendship and how 
Star Trek as a franchise has been around for 55 years. It can't just be about cool ships and sci-fi concepts. There has to be a, a human element, even if we are sometimes talking about Klingons and Vulcans and Bajorans, the human element of characters and, and how that makes intriguing uh, television. Well, yeah, this is what I wanted to ask you about generally because, you know, we have the Fast and Furious franchise that says it's all about family. And we have the Marvel Universe where everyone thinks that if Wanda had better friends, then she wouldn't <laughs> have gone to be the villain in Doctor Strange. But is, like, is Star Trek, I mean, A, the original franchise built on friendships? Is it still doing it better than anybody else? I mean, uh, on TV, I mean, uh, you know, maybe there's some things that, that predate it. But, but, I mean, yes, I mean, part of what makes – an episode of Star Trek work is you know that Kirk and Spock love each other and Bones and Spock can't stand each other but love each other too. You know, and it, inf it informs every decision that they make. You know, you know that they're, they've got each other's back. And the other thing about the show, when you think about it, it like other good shows that are about friendships, think about Cheers, right? Mm -hmm. That's a work show. They all go to work at the bar. Yep. Norm and Cliff are they working? Maybe. But they all go to work at the bar. Star <laughs> Trek is a work show. They wake up in the morning, they go to work. You know, they, you know, you got the image of Chekhov and Sulu, like, at the front. They kind of share a desk. You know, they're mm -hmm. at the front at the helm. The boss is behind them in the captain's chair telling them what to do. And they can give each other looks and roll their eyes. And it's people at the office. And they go to the doctor that, you know, they're all, they're all on the job. And then they can clock out and hang out at 10 forward at the bar and talk about the day they had at work and fighting aliens and brokering intergalactic peace. But, you know, by and large, it, it it's a work show. And that's, those are friendship shows. I, I think in terms of, like, fandom, you know, sort of these, quote, unquote, nerdy franchises, uh, I think that's, that is part of what appeals to a lot of people is finding, finding friends and uh, finding those relationships in the work that you know, maybe don't exist in your real life. I think of um, more and more people talking about the MCU as a kind of long-running, indefinite television series. Mm -hmm. And I think that definitely connects to what you're talking about. That's kind of been the cornerstone of TV, and especially TV's earlier days when you had long, indefinite runs, is why did people continue to invest? And it was the relationships on the show that were often yeah. not romantic. So, Jordan, you, you and all the Trek that's on TV right now, it's kind of a weirdly golden age for Star Trek because of Paramount Plus. You wanted us to watch Strange New Worlds. Um, as, yeah. And I don't know if it's because it holds up this ethos of Star Trek or just because it's the best one that's on right well, now. Well, um, Strange New Worlds, we're recording this right now, and the third episode is dropping in a couple of days. So it's still very early. I've, I've had the... Uh, me and other critics, we've seen the first five episodes. So it's still early. We don't know exactly where it's going to go. But Strange New World is exciting because it's a really, really, really good place for people who are completely new to Star Trek that maybe haven't even seen the Chris Pine films, but have heard about Star Trek their whole lives. It's been around for 55 years, but it can be a little bit intimidating. Oh, my God, where the heck do I start? And if somebody says start at the beginning, if you watch the original series although I love it and so many other people do, it is a 55-year-old show, so it has a different pacing that, than shows sure. of today. And, and Strange New Worlds really does have the sensibility of that first series, the original series. It has that attitude, that kind of zippy, 
fun. Every episode is not particularly tied to the one before it. You don't have to know a heck of a lot. It's just fun and funny and has a good message and oftentimes has some wild sci-fi in it. And there are the characters that you kind of sort of know. Spock is in it. He's uh, right. the Strange New Worlds is set 10 years before the original series. So it's a younger Spock, but he's still Spock. And, and Ethan uh, Peck, who is Gregory Peck's grandson, is um, yeah. is the new Spock. And he is great. And Zachary Quinto played Spock in the recent movies, and he was very good. Ethan Peck is great. I mean, there's only one Leonard Nimoy, but there are two Spocks. Mm. Bangs gavel. I mean, mm. wow. Ethan Peck has got it. He's got the voicing. He's got the humor. Uh, he's not doing an impersonation of Leonard Nimoy, but he is mind melded, if you will, with the concept of Spock. And he's very, very, very funny. There's also the young Uhura in this. And it's funny. I mean, even though I've only seen five episodes, there's 55 years of Uhura in Star Trek lore. There's more Uhura in these five episodes than in the 55 years. I mean, in 1966, when Star Trek launched, it was revolutionary to have a black woman on the bridge of a ship in an important mm -hmm. role with a title, and she had a function, and she was wonderful and great, but she didn't do that much other than simply be there. And in fact, Nichelle Nichols was frustrated and wanted to leave the show. This is a very famous story in Star Trek lore, but not everybody knows this. She wanted to leave the show. She was a, a singer, a stage singer prior, wanted to get back to that. Because she's like, I'm on the show and it's cool and I wear a cool outfit, but I don't really do much. And it was none other than Martin Luther King who told her to stay on the show. Because just hmm. by simply being there, that's a pretty, pretty big name to tell you what to wow. do with your television career said stay on that show because you were inspiring a lot of people simply by being there so yes yeah. uhura has been great over the years and has had wonderful moments star trek 3 the search for spock she has a really good moment when she whips out her phaser but in the new show there's a lot more going on with her and other characters in the new show some are brand new to the show others are from lore from the old days, but were minor in the old days and are now more pronounced. Nurse Chapel, for example, only gets a couple of lines in original series here and there. Now she's a major character and expanded upon and But this is all fun. stuff that like if you're me and you don't remember any of I have seen the Star Trek movies, but like there's there's no requirement to like they're they're there for fans, but not Yes, all of this stuff is 100% you don't need to know. If you've never heard the name Nurse Chapel before, when you meet her on Strange New Worlds, she's just a new spunky nurse who's a lot of fun, played by this wonderful Australian actress. Dr. Mbenga also is from the original series. He was in two episodes. Hardcore nerds know him, but if you don't know Dr. Mbenga from back then, you know him now. And uh, yeah, there, there's a couple of things. I mean, technically, Strange New Worlds is a, a spinoff of Discovery, which is entering its fifth season soon and has a bit of a complicated legacy to it. And to kind of jump right into Discovery now would involve a little bit of homework. You don't need to know much of anything going into Strange New Worlds. And what you don't know is explained to you. There's a, you know, a little bit of, of exposition to get you up to speed in episode one. And by the time you get to episode two, you're, you're, off, on, you're off to the races. So there's a couple of things... But they do a really good job of, of keeping you up to date. Is Michelle Yeoh still on Star Trek Discovery? She is not. Okay. She, I mean, you never know on Star Trek. They can come back. Sure. She is not. She 
she entered the guardian of time portal and she, <laughs> she went back. Her original character was killed, but then her mirror universe counterpart came uh-huh. back mm-hmm. and then she zoomed away to a different point in time and space. There were rumors uh, that they were going to build a spinoff based on her character called Section 31, which is like a dark arts, black operations, CIA type thing. I don't know if that series is actually going to happen. It has not been officially greenlit. There's been talking about it for years. If I were a betting man, I would imagine that it's not going to happen. I was just thinking about how she's like in, you know, this massive movie and is like in this huge moment. And she's been on a Star Trek show that I haven't been watching and I felt kind of bad about it. Right, right. She's been a high point. She she was never... Um, for a little stretch, she was in every episode. She's, she was my wife's favorite character. Let's put it that way. When mm. she would show up, she was really good. Yeah, Discovery has a lot of great characters. It's a little bit of work to get into Discovery because the first season was a little rocky. They took some big swings that didn't really connect. But there are some great things. There are some great... You mentioned Michelle Yeoh. You know who else is on Star Trek Discovery that a lot of people know? Tig Notaro is on the show. Didn't know she, that. Yeah, see... Didn't know it. Damn it. Nobody knows these things. Tig Notaro is awesome on this show. She is one of the engineers and she, most of her scenes are against Anthony Rapp. Now you knew Anthony Rapp was yes, on Discovery, I right? I did, I yes. did. Cause he's been on, wasn't he on previous Star Trek? No, no, no. This? But he was oh. one of the, he was on Discovery. He's a, he's one of the, um, above the title. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So he's been on Discovery. He's in every episode. He's a major, major character. So dig this. On a random episode of Discovery, you've got at least one scene of Tig Notaro and Anthony Rapp hurling sassafras at each other. Just like it's really, (laughs) really funny. They're just sarcastic. And we talk about this in the Star Trek Book of Friendship. Their relationship is a relationship founded entirely on sarcasm. And it's really, really fun to watch. So she's on the show. Did you know that David Cronenberg, the director, is on Star Trek Discovery? Neither like of you maybe knew this. somewhere in my brain I did, I, but yeah, not really. The, the, I mean, <laughs> I know David Cronenberg. <laughs> yeah, he he may. I, I I it is ringing a bell because I know he appears weirdly. I think it popped up on Twitter one time. Yeah, people <laughs> occasionally put his, put a picture of him on Twitter with the thing like, "Did you?" So David Cronenberg right. plays like. All right, so I'm not. They go off in the. They're in the way future, and it's the year three thousand zillion whatever, and. <laughs> Well, whatever. He plays like a like an important. I don't know what his exact title is. He's like the admiral of something or other, and he handles like intelligence and security in the future for the Federation of Planets. And he like shows up and does these interrogation scenes. And it's David Cronenberg. I mean, why they shoot it in Toronto? And sure. you know, he's the king of Toronto film. He's right I mean, down the not, street. Yeah, he's right down the street. I think it it started off, it maybe was like a gag to put him in one episode, but he's kind of a bit, he's not a major character, but he's a set, he's a semi-regular and he's had some important scenes, you know? Because Star Trek is the kind of thing where you'll get all kinds of people who are like, I've always wanted to be on the bridge of the Enterprise. Like, I'll come. I don't know if the yeah. Enterprise is in Discovery. Well, wait, so David, you you watch Strange New Worlds as well. And like, I think you maybe don't know a ton about Star Trek like me. I do not. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, let's see. On a non-Star Trek note, I was thrilled to be able to count myself among those who are aware of the Anson Mount Assance. I mean, just seeing shots of him on Twitter, like so that handsome. silver well, it's hair been and everywhere, that uniform. And I, I, I felt, know. I've had that FOMO. I've had Anson FOMO. And <laughs> as, as someone who watched the entire first season of Hell on Wheels, this was major for me. Good. Wow. Yeah. Another thing I really, I really liked the episode that I saw. And one thing that felt throwbacky in the best way was it. Uh, I assume it, it's a pretty episodic show, and I know that other 
spinoffs or Star Trek shows on right now are not or more season long arcs. It's nice to be able to just have a more procedural element with these shows sometimes. So that was very refreshing. And yeah, it, it, I was also looking at it because of the assignment here through the lens of friendship. And so knowing even that this was a spinoff, and I think it was like those three, number one, Spock and um, Pike and Captain Pike. Um, I know Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> um, like knowing that there was some desire for those characters to have their own show and, and being able to see that play out. Yeah, I'm on board. Yeah. yeah, pun intended. Well, you know, uh, if you're into the Anson Mount thing, second episode, you do see him wearing a space apron, making dinner for a large party. Sounds great. Uh, so Invite it's pretty me. cool. There's a there's a lot of him coming up, and I will say, uh, and here's another scoop for Little Gold Men. As I mentioned, <laughs> I have been very lucky to sort of be a fan moderator, panel moderator for Star Trek for a long time. He was on the cruise in 2020, and. Even though it was a convention, he was on stage. The shortest shorts imaginable. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't. I, maybe they weren't Birkenstock brand Birkenstocks, but definitely like those types of sandals, and not just by the pool on stage. Also, so yeah, you know, it was he's on great. vacation. He was on vacation, and he's a very charming fella. They all are. So I'm I'm grateful to you for noticing the short shorts and bringing that information. Could not back notice. To us. Well, Jordan, if people are invested in not just short shorts, but friendship, they can buy your book uh, everywhere, right? <laughs> yeah, it's on it's on the Amazon. Um, it is in some stores. A friend of mine was so excited, went to the store, and there were supply chain issues, so it wasn't there no. yet. But it's on. It's coming to stores if it's not there already. But Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, all the other places. The Star Trek Book of Friendship. It's a great gift if you have a Star Trek friend. If your brother-in-law loves Star Trek and it's his birthday, great gift for him. And it's a great time to get in on this strange new worlds if you've been dragging your feet about paramount plus you know try the free membership for a month or however long the free membership is and this show is a lot of fun that does it for this week's show we'll be back next week richard and rebecca will continue sending us dispatches from can and you can read lots of other stuff at vanityfair.com you can follow us on twitter we're all at little gold men and on our own i am at katie rich and david David Canfield 97. And our special guest, Jordan, tell us where you are on Twitter and anywhere else you want people to find you. Yes, you can read my work sometimes at VanityFair.com. I've been freelancing for VanityFair.com for well over a decade and enjoyed every moment of it. And in addition to that, you can find me on Twitter at Jay Hoffman. And if you are ever in Queens, New York, just shout my name and we'll come hang out. <laughs> Uh, you can also set up to text with us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 917-746-3771. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best thing we can all hope to be saying walking out of a summer movie this year goes to Jordan Hoffman. It's idiotic, but it's good. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.